I'm going to push back on that because again, that's, that's actually my point. I mean, like, well, why are people spending more time engaging with these CRMs and sales enablement tools and all these other sort of stuff? Hello, and welcome to this edition of the black line podcast. This is the pre inbound black line podcast. We are sitting here on a Thursday before inbound 2019 and uh, I've been excited. I've been looking for a reason to do this, and I, I want to welcome Scott Brinker. Scott, you have the honor. Well, I don't know if you can actually call it an honor, but the something. You are our first repeat guest. I think it was about two years ago that we that we had you on, and we talked about platforms and things like that. So, uh, welcome back to the show. Wow, I'm honored to be back again. Good to see you. We should do this every two years, like an anniversary. <laughs> There you go. Exactly, exactly. I like it. I like it. It's like when I do uh, when I do workshops. When they come back from lunch, I feel like okay, I'm doing a good job. They didn't. Know me. <laughs> we're good. We're good. Um, so I I don't know if anybody doesn't know who you are and, and what you do. Um, so, uh, but for those that, that those that aren't like maybe my mom doesn't know what you do. Um, just kind of tell everybody um, what your uh, what your thing is. Yeah, actually, my mom doesn't know what I do. So it's yeah, perfectly cool. Um, so I, I, I wear two hats. Uh, I work at HubSpot as the VP platform ecosystem where I'm really focused on our app partner uh, program. Uh, so opening up HubSpot to allow other MarTech companies, other sales tech companies to integrate uh, and work better together with HubSpot. Uh, and then, yeah, sort of what I do in my free time uh, is, yeah, I'm just, I'm just a MarTech nerd. Uh, so I write the Chief MarTech uh, blog. I've done that for over 10 years now and uh, program chair of uh, an event called uh, MarTech uh, that focuses on bringing other MarTech nerds together uh, so we can uh, nerd out over, you know, stacks and things like that. And <laughs> you always forget you're, you were the inventor of the MarTech landscape. So, you know, I try and deny that as often as I, I can. I, I <laughs> yeah, I, that crazy I, chart with all the little logos. It's. Um, I thought your full-time job was finding a spot for the next logo. You know, it would be. I, I will tell you there is a team now at uh, Blue Green who collaborates with me on this of nine people who work on assembling that each year at this point. It's just totally out of control. Wow. Do you have any idea that that you'd have one person working on it when you created that the first time instead of nine? I mean, again, it really isn't about the landscape. It's about the industry. I mean, the dynamic that this industry has taken, I mean, I certainly wouldn't have predicted this. I mean, back when it was like 150 or 300, I'm like, wow, this is a pretty uh, extensive and robust industry. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and and, and the other thing that I think is really cool is as, as part of, I guess it's the conference or whatever you do, the stackies, and, and you've had hundreds of companies send you the, the, you know, their version of their tech landscape as they, they illustrate their tech stacks. I just thought that was, when you started sharing that, I just thought that was amazing. I, you know, again, all the credit goes to the companies that enter those. I mean, you know, some of the companies like Microsoft and Cisco, companies I never would have dreamed would have been willing to, you know, share like, oh, these are the different tools we use. Here's how we think about them. Here's how we've, you know, orchestrated this together. And I just find that so valuable to the whole community that those companies were willing to share that. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a cool community. 
You know, it's funny that you said it because um, a couple podcasts ago, I, I just come back from uh, the marketing AI conference that Paul Rotzer put on, um, and we were talking about that. And, and when I talked to Paul, he, he kind of had the same reaction, which was some of these big companies, their level of participation, I would never have predicted that, that they would be the ones that would engage that much, and they would be the ones that share and how much that has stimulated everything. So uh, anyways... Yeah, I think it's you actually you for putting it together and, and making it happen and everyone else in participating for it. All right. Well, thank you. So let's get to the fun part. Um, you you wrote a couple different posts that um, outside of your tweets about singing Yellow Submarine to your dog. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. That's been tracked. Oh, my goodness. Maybe a little video. I'm not, I can't remember. Anyhow. Um, <laughs> Um, you wrote, uh, you know, a piece about Martech is marketing. And, and I want to kind of put that together with another post that you talked about in terms of, in terms of the adoption, kind of the two schools of adoption, um, to figure everything out before you start. And I'm going to oversimplify yeah. this and just the skip requirements, jump into the deep end of the pool and start making things happen. Um, that, that that's going to kind of theme, I think what we're going what we'll talk about and, and who knows where that goes. Um, but summarize what your primary um, takeaway, what's the primary takeaway from, from the whole realization that you had that MarTech is marketing? Yeah, you know, it was interesting. So that came about actually from a brainstorm uh, with the team at Third Door Media, who are the folks who actually produce the MarTech conference. Uh, I mean, they do all the hard work of that. I, all I do is get up on stage and wave my hands for an hour. Um, but it was interesting because, you know, we were watching the audience of that show evolve. You know, I, I mentioned earlier, like, oh, well, it's an event for MarTech nerds to get together and MarTech nerd out. Uh, well, that's certainly how it started. But it's been really interesting to watch over the years of the audience is increasingly what I would just characterize as mainstream marketers, mainstream marketing leaders who are now, they're, they're not putting MarTech in this little box that sits over there and there's some MarTech nerd that understands that and, you know, my world is over here and yeah, we throw things back and forth, but they're, they're separate to increasingly something where, okay, if I'm a, you know, CMO, if I'm a VP of marketing of, frankly, a company of, you know, any size or momentum at this point, I'm actually now thinking very carefully about how I embed marketing technology and operations into my organization. Um, and so we sort of came up with that, that, that flag of saying, listen, you know, MarTech is marketing, you know, and, you know, there was, of course, debate because people, you know, instantly interpret that as like, well, you're saying all of marketing is MarTech, which is clearly not the case. No, what we're simply saying is just as like, you know, branding is a part of marketing, you know, demand generation management is a part of marketing, you know, pricing impact. I mean, all these things that we consider as core marketing disciplines, I think we've reached a level of maturity in the industry as a whole, in the profession as a whole, that we can say actually MarTech, you know, managing these technology uh, capabilities and these stacks is marketing. So MarTech is a marketing function. It is a essential part function. of marketing. It's not yes. the entirety of marketing, no, 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 but right, it's but an essential component of it. Yes. It, so, so what is some of what you're saying is, because when I first saw it, I was like, okay, well, hold on a second, Scott. You may have been <laughs> just a little bit too much. Um, then I read it. 
right? That's you know. it's almost like it was clickbait. I didn't intend it to be clickbait, but it became clickbait. Uh. But so, so, and, and it, 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 it'll be an interesting tack on this. So, so what I'm hearing you say is that um, Martech is a marketing discipline. It's a marketing function. It's not a tech. So Martech is of the domain of marketing. It is not of the domain of tech. In fact, actually, you've said it far more eloquently than I did. That is exactly the right way to look at it. Um, Artie, so here's my question. And and can I throw sales tech into MarTech as yeah, well? I, yeah, and I, yeah, come, I think those what, blend. What do we, how come that doesn't have a name? Like, we got FinTech and we got MarTech, but sales is, you know, like always, sales is never given its due. No one treats sales with the, you know. I'm, yeah, well, what about service tech? <laughs> Customer success tech, yeah, yeah. Further down on the totem ball, right? Yeah. Um, um, and and well, it gets to some distributed business strategy as well, which which I think we would all agree on. But but here's the here's the central question that I have as, as a way to you know potentially bring some uh, some give and take and and not make it a we agree on everything show that just gets really boring really fast. I I, I salivate when I think about what the technology does today. And I think about what I did as a salesperson back in um, in the 1990s. And, and I mean, just so you know, I, I always recommend, you know, my first CRM was an index card box. Um, my second CRM was Act for DOS. That was that was my first piece of MarTech was Act for DOS. So um, those of you that are listening, anybody that's in the sales and marketing space right now, go. You got to look it up probably on, on Google or something. They might not even have it indexed anymore. Um, and you think about what we can do today and, and what we know about somebody and, and, and all, all those things come together. I mean, if I could have waved a magic wand, if my fairy godmother had come down and said, create the environment for whatever that you would want to have, um, we're three times past the magic wand that I would have waved in the 1990s with, with the technology that exists today. Right? Would, you, would, would that be fair? Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. Order of magnitude. But why did salespeople spend two times the amount of time actually selling when they didn't have it and they had to do everything manually? And this promise of technology that's going to accelerate and enable you to do more, um, why are we doing less as a result of a solution that's supposed to enable us to do more? Oh, well, my answer to that would be I think sales has gotten uh, exponentially harder. Right. I mean, we used to live in a world where the volume of engagements that people had with salespeople and other kinds of marketing, it had a balance where basically sales could command attention. Right. I mean, I don't know about you going back to the days of act. Most of the time when the phone rang, I would pick it up. And if it was a salesperson, I would actually engage in a conversation off of that cold call. Um, right. I mean, just the world has evolved uh, and now you can't do that. So you have to work a lot harder as a salesperson, you know, to reach the right people, to reach them at the right time, to get them through different channels, to make the way in which you're engaging with them much more personalized. It's, it's a lot more work. So the technology has enabled a lot more power for salespeople, but, but the, the but ask, salespeople I think, is spent, much higher. So uh, that'd be, I don't know. I don't agree a hundred percent, but, but the, when, when the, the research from CSO salespeople are spending 
32% of their time actually selling, spending 40% of their time on administrative functions surrounding demand gen. So what, what I'm getting at is take some research recently that came from CSO. Uh, average sales rep right now is spending about 32% of their time actually selling, spending just over 40% of their time with administrative activities surrounding demand generation. The, the, the tool that was supposed to free us from doing things, salespeople are spending more time. So I, outside of whether selling, how much harder selling is, how much harder it is to get to the conversation, the percentage of time spent on activities that are sales activities versus non-sales activities over the last 30 years, we've seen consistent decrease. Yeah, see, I'm going to push back on that because, again, that's that's actually my point. I mean, like, well, why are people spending more time engaging with these CRMs and sales enablement tools and all these other sort of stuff? You know, it's not because... Um, oh, well, uh, I love this stuff. Yeah, let me spend time doing this instead of actually being on the phone. And it's not really because managers are just telling them you have to do this because salespeople in general as a class, I think are very independent. That's not what drives them. They're like, listen, I'm going to do whatever creates revenue for me. The reality is you spend that time engaging with these tools because that is part of the process now of how you actually raise your game of being able to reach these, uh, you know, prospects and then, you know, sell to these customers at the level they expect and making sure that, you know, all the other marketing activities of the organization, you know, that got, get brought to bear around those accounts are able to be synchronized along with what you're doing. I'm not saying we can't make it better and that we shouldn't make it better. I'm just saying, you know, the, the work that is going into this is a function of the challenge that it has become to be a successful salesperson in the digital world. It's, it's so hard I'll, work. Yeah, and I'll, I'll add kind of like two real quick thoughts to that um, as, as we're sitting here talking about this and hearing both, of, both, both sides of this. I I'm hoping Mike comes on your side because then we can really make it a rumble. Then we can really get it. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> I think I think truly part of the problem is on both sides of it. Um, I think a lot of reps today they get into this paralysis state because they're doing too much analysis of the available data, and part of the reason why they do that is because there's all of these digital mediums out there. Like I can't tell you how many times per day, either whether it be on Twitter or LinkedIn salespeople are getting shamed because they sent some crappy email. So then the next thing you know, that person paralysis and it's like, well, I'm going to spend 50 hours writing the next best email instead of back, Doug, I'm, I'm right there with you. Like I wasn't there with, with act, but my first, you know, kind of CRM was a phone book and an Excel spreadsheet and a phone. Um, that was, that was how I accomplished what I needed to accomplish. Um, so I'm not back in the act or uh, my first my first card. sales training was press nine for the outside line. Yeah. Sales yeah. training's done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think that it, it, like it, and so part of it comes down to a little bit of of both sides of that. Now, for your more seasoned sales professionals, I don't think they have some of those challenges, like you know people that have been in the industry for quite some time. But I think that's maybe why you see so much of hey, I've got a 
I, I, before I even pick up the phone to call this person, I'm going to fill out 50 forms in my CRM to make sure that I have all the playbooks and everything that I want to say exactly down to a science, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that, that's just kind of a thought that just came to my mind. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. I might just play on that for one thing here, because, you know, I've spent most of my time in the past five years thinking that the greatest challenge for marketers was trying to live up to these rising expectations of customers. It's just, it's insane, right? I mean, like why they, the, the phrase, you know, like the last best experience anyone had anywhere from anyone, you know, now becomes, you know, the bar they expect from anyone that they deal with. And so I'm, I'm used to how incredibly crushing that challenge is for Mario. It's just hard. You were always running. But to be honest, I haven't spent enough time thinking about this through the sales hat. And I guarantee it is the exact same dynamic. I mean, exactly what you're saying, Mike. I mean, the expectations people have now of how they want a salesperson to engage with them, ooh, that is a friggin' high bar. And so, yeah, for salespeople to feel that pressure, I, I, yeah, I think marketing and salespeople have a lot of empathy with each other, you know, on the challenge that this digital world has created for them. So, so, so I, I, I went to the sales side and I could have, I mean, I, I think that this, uh, the same thing would, would come on the marketing side and, and, and that the risk of um, disillusioning our, our, our internal group. I think that we have this problem. I think we live in a little bit of an echo chamber too much because, I mean, I'm, I'm out there with sales teams of 100 to 200 people using not good CRM, 100, 200 people using Salesforce. I've, I've done some advising you know, the super enterprise side, that's not where, I mean, and, and Mike, you're the senior reps, you know what the senior reps do? You know how they've adjusted to this growth of technology? They just ignore it. Yeah, that, that's the they're way not, I was. They're I not totally, putting the stuff in Salesforce. Yep, yep, um, and so there's a constant battle that's here. As a matter of fact, actually rolling something out is, is harder than ever because there's the fear, well, they're not going to do anything. You know, so so you, you come into these places and at and while on one hand, yes, I agree, it is harder, it is more sophisticated, um, but but I also think, on, on the other hand, I, I, be careful about talking about the good old days, right? And I'm not saying that anyone here is saying that, because my dad taught me, I remember the first time, he said the good old days were never as good as they are old. Um, and I, so I'll give you an example, right? We, we talk about how much harder it is to reach somebody. Um, a good full-time sales development rep, a cold call cowboy today makes $80 a day. That's like great if you look at the numbers. I made 250 dials a day. That was my job for like six months. I used to tell people when they started at Merrill Lynch, I said, go rent the movie, Glengarry, Glen Ross, and then follow it up with Groundhog Day because that's your life. Um, and, and I don't, so I don't deny the sophistication <laughs> So here's what I think is happening, right? And, and it'll plug to a bunch of other things. John Nesbitt in the book Megatrends coined the term high tech, high touch. And he said, high tech is powerful when it's combined with high touch. If we're high touch, no tech, it's not scalable, too complex, you don't have. But when it's high tech, low touch, it loses its humanity. It, it, it gets commoditized, it, it becomes disconnected. And so we have amazing technology. And what's happening is we're looking at the technology. So, so I don't agree that fundamentally what the buyer wants is different today than it was 20 years ago. Cause you know what I think the buyer wants more than anything else in the world. I think they want you to be human. Mm 
I think they want a human conversation. I think they want humanity. They want, they want reality. And I think we've become so the tech has become the solution so much. And, and I love them. You know, that's, I love tech, but, but it's become so much like tech is defined as the solution, not as the enabler of the solution. All right, so I agree with you on a lot of that. Uh, particularly the, you know, ultimately when someone does talk to another human, they want that humanity, they, they, they want the empathy, and they want that person to have the authority to be able to do what's necessary to fulfill their needs. I think where I would maybe disagree is, I think the big shift on the digital side continues to be that for the most part, most people don't wanna to talk to salespeople. They want to be able to get the information on their own terms, when they want it, make their own transactions, when they want it on their own terms. If they have a question, if they have a problem, if they have something that they can't solve some way on their own, okay, then I'd like to talk to a salesperson. When I do, I want that conversation to be human and I want it to be efficient. I don't want them trying to like steer the conversation, you know, towards their quota. I want them, you know, focused on helping me with, you know, my problem. And I think that is a very different environment for salespeople because, again, for a long, long time, salespeople were the channel of information to the customer. I mean, customers relied on their salespeople and gave them their attention to be able to get the answers uh, that they needed to make decisions. And we're just in a world now where that doesn't, I mean, it's a fraction of what happens today. I won the largest trophy I've ever had in my life that I've ever won in my life, and I've played all kinds of sports, was the Tom Hopkins three-day boot camp trophy. It's about four feet tall. <clears throat> you know how we started the program? Two things you need to understand. Nobody wants to talk to a salesperson. Nobody wants to be sold to. We said it in 1990. We said it in 2000. We said it in 2010. We're going to say it in 2020. I, I get, and I, I'm not saying it's not different, and Lord knows I'm out there in the world talking about that difference so, so i there, there is a higher threshold I, I agree that that we salespeople corporations talk to salespeople business people talk to salespeople because salespeople played a role of google right we were how you learned about something now let's make no mistake about it buyers did not talk to sellers because they wanted to buyers talked to sellers for that information flow because they had to and sellers then took advantage of that information asymmetry to manipulate a process to say, well, if you want access to my information, then Mr. So-and-so, you're going to need X. Buyers don't want to figure it out themselves. They, what they figured out was salespeople, whenever they talk to salespeople, they manipulated it. And, and, and by the way, if you take a look at some very recent research from Gartner, the number one issue for, and I'm not talking about the, the ongoing simple commoditized transaction type sale. I'm talking about complex sales, you know, risk involved, consideration that's required, degrees of expertise that are needed. The number one issue that's coming up on buyer complaints right now is they are not overwhelmed by content. They are overwhelmed by good content. And the problem that they're having is that the more they're researching, the more they're enabled by this self journey, the more confused they are. 50% mm -hmm. of, of buying processes are ending in no decision because they can't reach consensus because they go, you know what? We, we can't figure this out. And, and as a matter of fact, Gartner has now labeled this sense-making. 
you know, the, the graduation of, of the challenger sale is now sense making. No, we know that salespeople from the beginning of time, good salespeople from the beginning of time, this is what they did. But, but like the demand is who I, I need somebody to sit down and help me make sense of it. Aberdeen research did a major study on this 80% of buyers the same people that we keep hearing are 67% through the journey say we want to talk to a salesperson before the consideration phase who will help us do this help us do this and help us do this right now I think again I'm going to circle back to I think that I think that tech, the, the place where we get in trouble is when we look to technology as the solution. I think technology enables the solution. So let's isolate that. What's your take on that statement? Technology is not a solution. It is an enabler or an accelerator for a solution. Uh, as a soundbite, I agree with that. Of course, it's always, you know, it, it's at the margins where, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, again, like if, if I'm uh, using, um, I mean, you know, like a, a, a attribution, you know, multi-touch attribution analytics package. Um, okay, you can say, yes, how I interpret the data coming out of that, act on, I mean, like there's a lot of things that still the agency falls on me as the marketer as to how I'm leveraging that. But the truth is, yeah, I mean, you know, good multi-touch attribution analytics software is actually doing a lot of work for me. So I, I'm, I'm off no, on the, the edge cases no, no, here. I, yeah, I, I generally agree with you. It's how you use the technology matters. So, so here's the thing that's interesting, right? Um, and by the way, I don't, you said something about salespeople are getting blasted on LinkedIn. I hate it when people do that. It's not the salesperson's fault. I, I, no, I, I agree. I know, I know, I know you agree with me. Um, and, and, and it's the funny thing. And it was funny because when I read your article, I thought to myself, why do we call it MarTech? We don't call it OpTech. Right. And, and what, if man, what, what if the manufacturing group, what if the operations group managed technology the way sales and marketing is managing technology today? What, what would happen? The business would explode because nobody that runs a sustainable operations side is going to put an accelerant before they've designed a business process. Yeah, I know where you're going on this, but I, I here would be my pushback because, you know, this is the back office, back office, front office debate is the environment in which the back office operates is infinitely more stable uh, and changes at a very different curve rate than what we're seeing just out in the market. I mean, the, you know, the customer experience, you know, marketing tactics, which channels, you know, this stuff changes at such an incredible rate that marketing and sales are forced into being much more experimental ahead of the curve. Um, and I'm not, again, I, this isn't a good thing or a bad thing. It's just, it, it's the nature of the environment. Um, and one of the side effects of that is, yeah, you get a lot of this sort of, you know, not just tech churn, but to be honest, it's kind of tactics churn. It's, it's strategy churn. It's like, you know, people trying to figure out the right way and the most effective way to connect with the audience they're reaching for. Um, 
So that brings us to Martech's law, does it not? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, uh, you could argue there isn't a Martech's law in the manufacturing. It's not called manufacturing's no. law for a reason. <laughs> well, you know, I don't, I, actually, I bet you, I think there is. So I, I, mm. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I get what you're saying in terms of the rate. I don't, I don't know enough about manufacturing to, to, to know what's there. I mean, I know that there's, here, here's the thing that I'm amazed by. If you want to compare manufacturing technology to sales technology, manufacturing technology has actually delivered on the promise that, that one third of the people are producing 10 times the output. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you have, you know, the, the technology has actually done that. I look at every company that is growing right now and what, you know, what they're, you know, what line is growing faster than any other line number of salespeople. Yeah. Well, but again, right? I mean, like manufacturing is a, what do they call it? It's a, uh, to be techy, it's a deterministic process. You know, once I've got a process in place, I put in these inputs, it goes through the process and output comes. Marketing and sales does not work that way. We try and model it that way, but the variance that happens because of the other parties who we don't control in the process, um, yeah, just, you know, makes that a much more... Continue challenging <laughs> don't don't control in the process was the key point um by the way martech's law for those of you that don't know what martech's law is technology changes exponentially but organizations change log logarithmically try to say logarithmically 10 times real fast <laughs> um which, which, which by the way leads to explosions right because the most the, the absolute most dangerous thing that in any in any process is asynchronization Right. And, and so we've got organizations that are totally out of sync. And, and I want to circle back. I want to hit something on manufacturing. I believe that sales and marketing is going through the, um, the renaissance and reformation um, that manufacturing did in the 1980s. Um, what manufacturing figured out that I think sales and marketing hasn't figured out is constraint theory. Hmm. Right. It's constraint theory and bottleneck theory. And by the way, I hear so many people talking in the sales side what everyone in manufacturing was talking about in, in the 1980s, which is efficiency, efficiency, efficiency. And what happened was the more efficient op uh, manufacturing operations got, the more money they lost. Remember the days when people used to write down inventory? That was like a normal thing. And, and the problem was the more efficient they got, the more inventory they had to write down. And then someone came along and said, no, 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 let's look at the constraints and bottlenecks. Right. And so, we're using technology to pick up speed, pick up speed, pick up speed, but we haven't fundamentally changed the bottleneck. And, and the thing that scares me more than anything else is what technology in the sales and marketing space is doing is it's enabling us to pick up velocity, volume so much that our yields are decreasing to such a level. You know, why do people send out shitty emails? Before you could send email, you had to actually remember when you had to write letters to. Do you remember when we had to write letters to a prospect? Like we actually, and we put a stamp on it, and we would not get a read receipt. Remember that? Well, it was a higher cost thing to do, and we took more time to do it. And it, it it's funny everyone's talking about personalization on email, and what they're basically <laughs> saying is write a letter like you did in 1983. Um, well, now I can send emails out at such a rate that if I send out 10,000 shitty emails, I'll net more than if I send out 1,000 good emails. 
Yeah, well, it's a tragedy of the commons on that, uh, right? Because if you if you are only sending the good ones and right, all of your competitors are not even your competitors, but basically everyone else that your buyer is somehow getting touched by is slamming them with 10,000. You know, if they actually get your email and they're like, wow, that was a really good email. Okay, you win them, but you are now facing up against the odds of them ever actually even reading your email just to begin with because they're like, oh my God, I have like, you know, 500 messages a day that I have to like, how quickly can I like, throw these away without losing the one from, you know, my grandmother. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's uh, this, again, it goes back to the environment. I feel that marketing and salespeople are in, you could argue some of this is our own creation. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just, it is really hard. Uh, so Mike, what's your thoughts so far? Come on, we got a battle. We got to do something. I, I mean, no, I mean, I, I, you're having too much fun listening right now. I, I, I am. I, I am. In, I'm enjoying listening. So I'm, I'm just going to sit here and keep listening for, 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 for a few more minutes. Okay. So, so at least Scott, you're going to know that I actually do read your stuff though. Right. I mean, there's, there's. Yeah. Some... And, and, and I, and disagree with it. I mean, by all means, I think this is again, going back to my premise that just, you know, marketing and, marketing and sales is just such, it's going through tremendous change. It's really tough. Nobody has the answers. Um, certainly nobody has all the answers. Um, I think the best thing that happens is just candid dialogue, uh, you know, between practitioners in the field of, okay, well, what's working? What isn't? Why? Why do you think? Why do I disagree with that? You know, and even if each of us walks away with this with, you know, maybe just one or two different yeah. ways of viewing, you know, what we do. I mean, that, that's valuable. I mean, that's, uh, so yeah, yeah. Uh, bring so, it on. <laughs> you so there is, there is one, one point to make here. I'm sorry. You missed the, your chance to talk. I, I gave know, it to I you. I know, I know, I know. So on, the, but on the volume side, the other barrier that I think we're, that, that we're all facing is, is Scott, you mentioned it. Like the recipients are saying how much, how fast can I get rid of all of this junk that I'm getting just bombarded with? day in and day out but then you've got folks like google and microsoft building far more advanced spam algorithms spam systems to put those brick barriers up because they've recognized it you've got apple who you know with push notifications things like that it's just so you not only have the the, the human barrier but now you've got these physical barriers that are being put up that are trying to help reduce some of that overall volume that we're all dealing with. Yeah, I'd just like to say is, you know, one point on the curve, uh, Google spam filters are not working for me. Yeah, right. And, and because part yeah. of it is, you know, yeah. again, it, it kind of depends on what you uh, define as spam. I mean, like there's a, there is a category of spam that, right, has now been totally filtered. Yeah. Like I never actually see it, you know, so it never even occurs to me that I could be getting like Cialis pills from, you know, like halfway around the world anymore. Right. Um, but there's this other category of just like things that I've ended up subscribing to people's lists because at one point in time I was legitimately interested in some piece of something they had to offer. And it's not that I would consider them spam, but it's like now in their good intention, content marketing, nurturing, you know, sequencing, whatever you want to call it. It's just all of these folks collectively of everyone I've ever engaged with just, you know, on the whole, 
sent about 300 messages to me today. And I'm just, on most days, yeah, I just don't want to pay attention to that stuff. Um, you know, and I don't think I'm that much of an outlier here. Um, you know, I mean, again, oh, no, I, 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 I visit MarTech uh, websites for a living. So, you know, I'm probably a little bit of an outlier, but a little not bit. that much. <laughs> so, so you wrote a post around um, how companies are implementing technology as well. And, and you kind of, um, you kind of gave a, a, a contrasting viewpoint and, and you acknowledged that you were oversimplifying the approach, putting it as, you know, a, more of a black or white. But, but you kind of talk about, you know, there's the, the traditional waterfall, figure it all out. And then there's the agile where you kind of jump in and get in and so forth. Um, so just kind of frame that observation because I, I, I think these things are all connected and yeah. we're going to end at plumbing, by the way, just so I'll get, give the ending. Oh, excellent. Okay, good, good, good. Um, so to give credit where credit's due, I came across an article in uh, MIT Sloan Management Review. It's kind of like the, you know, uh, less popular sibling of Harvard Business Review. The um, Harvard Business Review of MIT. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a way to put it. You know, as this article where they're talking about the end of requirements gathering, and they had like interviews with even people at major pharmaceutical companies who said, yeah, we used to do all this stuff where we'd map out the requirements for all the software we'd want and whether we build it and we'd buy it and, you know, the stakeholders. But now, yeah, we just go and buy software and try it and see if it works because it's just faster and easier to do it that way. And I'm thinking, wow, that's, uh, you know, um, so I shared that article and oh my goodness, you thought I would have like, yeah, again, from like a hornet's nest into a wedding party. It's like, you know, people are like, oh, these folks are crazy and they're insane. And they're like, I mean, how can you do that? Of course you need to do requirements gathering before you go and buy software. That'd be madness. I'm thinking, well, actually, right. I mean, the whole SaaS world, you know, I mean, half of it is now driven by these free trial freemium models where it's all kind of predicated on the idea of, listen, the best way for you to understand what this software can do and whether or not it would be a good fit for you is to just get it and try it. And if you try it for a while and you decide it's not what you want, you know, jettison it. Um, but actually, if you try it and you use it, you'll probably have, you know, if the software is a good match, right? That'll be the best and fastest way for you to learn how to use it. And again, this isn't the same thing for all kinds of software. Not every software purchase is equal, right? I mean, what you want for your payroll management system, you know, uh, is maybe different than, uh, you know, what you want for, oh, let me try this, you know, automated tool for social media monitoring. But I don't know, actually, a fair number of accounting, you know, systems now have uh, freemium uh, offers too. And so, uh, yeah, that's why I was putting up with this plan of like, actually, maybe we are getting to a place where more of the way organizations adopt software is maybe increasingly more of this bottom up of, you know, people trying software. I mean, Dropbox, Slack, Zoom. I mean, you can name like all these companies now that are successful IPOs that were basically built on the model of, yeah, just let people get the software and try it and use it. And then eventually, if an entire company has adopted it all, oh, well, then we'll go and we'll meet with the CIO and we'll come up with some sort of enterprise license. That's, that's a really wild change when you think about it. Why do you think freemium, why do you think these companies have gone to a freemium model? Wow, that's a great question. Um, you know, it, uh, it's kind of the difference between talking the talk and walking the walk. Um, 
you know, I think for a lot of software, particularly if you're focused on creating a good user experience, the most effective sales and marketing tool you can have is let the customer try the software, you know, because it, it is, it, it, it's the ground truth of what it, like if I get Dropbox, you know, in the free version, I just try it, then there's no me having to interpret, oh, well, the marketing literature said this, and the salesperson said this other thing, and what will I actually get in the end? And if I sign the contract, you know, am I gonna be disappointed? Am I gonna buyer's remorse? It's like you get rid of all of that and you're just like, listen, just try the friggin' software. And if, yeah, if it works the way you expect it, then okay, then you buy it and you upgrade it. It's, it's kind of like a, uh, yeah, almost like uh, let's get to the ground truth, uh, you know, of what's being sold. What if freemium was really just the Trojan horse strategy? Well, all right. So this is where we get into, um, you know, the problems we have with everything in marketing is um, at the end of the day, everything is about a battle to get attention, uh, an incredibly limited uh, commodity. Um, you know, right, people aren't gonna try all the software. Uh, they're not gonna review all the possible, right? It's like, who gets there first? Who can try it? Who do I win? Um, and so I think, yeah, I mean, we saw this with content marketing. You were describing this earlier with, you know, email of, you know, people, you know, well, just blast 10,000 emails. Um, I think, yeah, you, you could certainly look at freemium and say, oh, okay, well, if that's now become the channel by which, you know, a whole class of vendors is essentially marketing uh, to their target audience, then you can start to get people who look to play a game there and say, oh, well then how do we manipulate that, uh, you know, to optimize our goals over the customer's goals and, or even not even that, it's like, how do we optimize that against our competitors? And yeah, I think when you get into that world, then yeah, I mean, you're going to have some weird dynamics. In the 1990s, um, CRM was the number one um, tech, spent more money was spent on crm in the 1990s than any other technology and the dissatisfaction rate of the crm implementations was over 70 percent probably not that different from today um ceb did research two years ago found on average typical companies spending five thousand dollars per year per rep more on sales and technology than they, than they did two years earlier and conversion rates were down um it's no secret that all kinds of tech implementations end up not delivering on the promise of those implementations. Um, is that because the tech was bad? I don't believe it's because the tech is bad. I, I believe that it's because, um, well, first off, garbage in, garbage out, right? And, and the, you know, the problem with tech, the problem with tech is tech automates a lot of functionality. That's the promise of tech. That's the problem of tech. Right. Um, so when a salesperson manages an inefficient process, and I'm just using a salesperson just as a stand, and I think it applies to other things. When a salesperson manages an inefficient process and there were disconnects or whatever, because they were managing it, they would make that adjustment. But now, now an algorithm is driving that and is driving that at really high volumes. And so it, 
really gets crazy. And, um, and it also leads to us being less connected with what's happening sometimes because we weren't involved there. Done correctly, it's magic. But, but what it does is it, it magnifies every misalignment, right? And, and it is really hard. Um, and uh, so on one hand, I love the democratization of technology. And I think the whole problem, so we, I think we have a legacy problem with technology that, that IT got viewed as a department, got viewed as a vertical department. Um, human resources had the same problem, right? Human resources was viewed as a vertical department. And, and when you start seeing where human resource, what I think was Fast Company that came, came out with the Why I Hate HR cover that was like devastating to all these HR companies. Um, and, and the leaders that, that, that have changed, I, I actually don't think there's as much negative opinion about HR. At least I don't hear it anywhere near as much today. I know you guys at HubSpot are, are one of the leaders in terms of how you look at the, the people function. And, and it's because you look at it as a horizontal function, not a vertical function, right? Yeah. IT, like it was never tech. Right. I mean, it, I think it started because operations was so much of tech. So the IT was an operations person under operations. And then we said, oh, that involves a computer. OK, give it to IT, give it to IT, give it to IT. If we go to the pre-SAS days, it was a CapEx spend. Sales and marketing didn't do CapEx spend. We did operating. You know, we were an operating expense, not a CapEx spend. Right. And so we threw it to IT. And so we started and we started calling it technology. Um, not realizing that if I write on a piece of paper with a pencil, that pencil is actually a technology, right? The computer is a high technology. How about that for geeking out? Uh, well, well played. Right. <laughs> uh, that's my Jeffrey Moore, my Jeffrey Moore is. <laughs> um, and, and so I think, so, so yeah, it's really, really hard to get to the senior team to move something through the organization. It's really hard, it's really painful. Hey. What if we could come in underneath? Now, now, there is some value to that, right? I'm not saying that, um, please, I'm not saying that there's no, it wouldn't work if there was no, it wouldn't work at all if there was no benefit. But, but what's happening is, is that, um, you know, in, in, in this company of 500 people, this company of 5,000 people, this company of 50,000 people, well, they're using this, they're using that. Um, I actually just had to do this for, a, um, we've got a client who's in the cybersecurity business. And one of the things that we're addressing is, uh, I actually got to coin the term. I called it SAS anarchy. Um, I like it. Um, and and so I so in doing the research, I found that the that the typical company with more than a thousand employees has two hundred SAS licenses or more. Um, uh, what was your that was that's bigger than your first um, Martech list? What well, wasn't your first Martech list? Just under two hundred. Yeah, hundred and fifty. Right, like one company now. Is, is bigger than your first MarTech list, right? Um, yeah. And, and it's not that the tech, tech, technologies are bad. It's like having two golf coaches, right? I could be great. I mean, I couldn't be great with either golf coach, but someone could be great with either golf coach, but they can't be great with both golf coaches. Yeah. All right. So let me push back on that just a tad because um, I think part of the challenge here is I really do feel like we have gone through a fundamental change in how software comes together in the world. Right. I mean, it used to be back to the, you know, the legacy of this of like on-premise 
or um, you know, our desktop-based applications that essentially you would buy a thing. It was a lot of work to buy it. It was a lot of work to install it. The companies that built these things were trying to aggregate as many capabilities into it. So, hey, you'll just buy Oracle and you'll be with Oracle and we'll do all of it for you. Um, and when we moved to the cloud, at first, it was like the, you know, the transition with electricity from you know, water wheels. It's like, at first, we took the same concept you know, and we're just like, oh, yeah, well, that's the same way you would structure and buy this stuff, but now it's in the cloud. But then over the past 10 years, we've started to realize, like, well, wait a second. Oh, these, these constraints of thinking, what is a piece of software, and why do I need one of this, you know, and why is it bad to have, you know, a bunch of smaller things interacting together versus, you know, one monolithic thing. Um, and, and you end up getting that there's pros and cons on both sides, but I'm just saying if you look at the world today, this multiplication of software, it's definitely not just in MarTech, it's across every category in software, it's in our own personal lives, I mean, the number of pieces of software I own is just like a homeowner at this point, you know, is insane. But in some ways, I don't even think about it now. It's like the, the, the fabric of that has just become so interwoven in my day to day life. So I just want to push back that I, I, I think the, the it's just you. a new reality. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you. And I, and I actually, so I think what technology has done, and, and we may actually get to, to a device that I know you and I both love from a platform perspective. What, what I think technology has done is it has made it really easy for, for organizations to skip the critical first step, the critical hard step. I have no problem. I, I don't think the number of pieces of technology is the indicator of, of success or failure. If the pieces of technology are aligned, but as you, as with any network, it's like having, if I have two people in a company, we can have all kinds of variants. When I have three people, four people, you get the whole network effect and that network effect works positive and negative. And so as you add more pieces of tech, you do create more power, potential, you create more potential power. It's like a rubber band, right? We're, we're, we're putting more tension on, which creates more potential power. The question is, does that power get unlocked or does it snap? Um, and, and so it's now easy. When I had to do it manually, and it's, it's kind of funny for me, because when I had to do it manually, I had to think about how to do it more. But now that I can just jump to a piece of technology that will do the thinking for me, that will put this in place, I'm now, I, I, I think about how these things impact other things less, not in the best cases, right? I mean, the, the comp, I mean, make no mistake about it. There are companies that are absolutely taking advantage of this, but that's where, you know, we talk about strategy. We talk about execution. We talk about tactics. We talk about tools a whole lot. Ralph Waldo Emerson. We're going to go to literature here. Excellent. Ralph, Excellent. <laughs> Ralph Waldo Emerson said, who you are speaks so loudly, I can't hear what you say. In, in organizations, structure is this invisible force. We talk, about, we talk about execution. We talk about strategy. We talk about culture. We say culture eats strategy for breakfast. But structure beats culture and strategy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Structure is that invisible thing that ultimately is the track that gets laid. And every time we put something into place, 
your structure speaks so loudly, I can't hear what you said. Salespeople are not mean, careless. I've, I've worked with thousands of salespeople. I've worked with shitty salespeople. Less than 1% of salespeople that I've worked with, and I'm a cynical guy, or at least a skeptical guy, as you guys can tell. Anyway, less than 1% of salespeople fit the, the typical definition of a salesperson. All they care about is commission. They'll lie, cheat, and steal. No, they won't. As a matter of fact, they, they want you to like them so badly, they'll, they'll do anything for you just to say – you're good, but the, you know, this structure and where these pieces go and, and how we, how we don't think through the business process. I, you can tell me it changes at a rapid pace. You can tell me it's, it's complex. What we do, what we're doing with technology is we're taking a complex system. We're pulling pieces out of the system and we're now, we, we now think because we've designed this, you know, because this is complicated, doesn't mean it's complex. If if you get, right? I know, I I definitely uh, we're on the same and wavelength. So, <laughs> and so we're taking these pieces out, and what's happening is, we are we are picking up speed at at a multiplication at exponentially. But we're losing velocity. Yeah, right? and and the reason is is because. We're skipping the step. Uh, well, it's, it's obviously more complex than this, but for purposes of the podcast, sales and marketing is a business process. Manufacturing is a business process. Yes, sales and marketing is unique to manufacturing, less because it's deterministic, more because it's open loop, right? Sales and marketing is the only system in a business that is open loop. We don't control it all. The market gets a vote. Or to put it in the words of the great philosopher Mike Tyson, Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the nose. You know, boxing is really dynamic and changes really fast. Hitting a baseball is really dynamic and changes really fast. As a matter of fact, if you want to hit a baseball, the person throwing the baseball to you is trying to fool you. It feels from the sales side like the buyer is trying to fool us, but they're not. Like the buyer wants to solve their problem, right? That's like they are they sincerely want to solve their problem, right? Those are dynamic systems. We built repetitive structure that increases the predictability, increases the probability. And you show me a great boxer, I'll show you somebody who puts together a great game plan. And as new things happen and new things emerge, they change game plans. Hitting, there's a game plan. Football, there's a game plan. We are skipping the game plan. Yeah, all right. I mean, again, this is one of these things where, like, you know, organization to organization, CMO to CMO, there's, there's a high bunch of variants. I definitely, I'm sure there are people who are just completely winging it uh, and saying, ah, well, we'll just try this tool and, you know, go for it. I think it's more the, the, the balance I see is like, okay, people do tend to think pretty carefully. I mean, a lot of the people I interact with, they do think pretty carefully about, all right, who's my audience? What's my strategy of how I'm trying to reach them? What matters to them? You know, and then when it comes to a set of possible technologies that can help them in that, 
the old way used to be, oh, okay, well, let's now really map out, you know, these detailed requirements and we'll evaluate all the possibilities and we're getting, it was a multi-month process. But no, it's like usually at that point in time where they're like, listen, we generally know what we want to do. Oh, here's this freemium software, you know, it, maybe there's two or three options and we'll look at those two, two or three, but generally we, we move at a much higher velocity of saying, okay, well, let's get one and try it. And it's not that they're trying it completely in a vacuum of, hey, I'll throw this against the wall. You know, it's just that the, this process of, I mean, I, I, my background is as a software engineer. And one yeah. of the reasons I'm so passionate about Agile is because I grew up in that software era of requirements definition and that's classic waterfall. And I can just say, every single time I participated in that process, maybe it's me, it was bullshit. Is people list their requirements and then the moment they actually start getting software that is exactly those requirements, they're like, no, no, that's not what I want. No, no, now that I see it, I want to try something completely different. You know, and at some point you realize like, okay, requirements that people write down on a whiteboard, they just don't have the, um, the, the, the sort of tangible connection to reality that actual working software does. And I think you can take that same process. It doesn't just apply to the building of software and how a software operates. It's like, oh, well, anywhere in the digital world, anything that we're creating these processes or these attempts of engagements, I mean, we can map it out on a whiteboard, but it's, it's kind of the Mike Tyson thing. It's like, you know, well, actually I gotta get in the ring and I gotta get punched in the nose and see what that feels like. And am I dodging to the left? And it's, it's something that happens by doing more than it does by planning. I, 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 I agree. And I want to say as a side note, you should write a book on like bringing agile to marketing or something like that. I don't know if you thought about that. <laughs> it would never sell. I don't know. <laughs> I, disagree. I don't know. So, I disagree so, with you. By the way, I totally agree with you that, that waterfall is not the way to do it. I totally agree with you that require, like, the, the place where we need to define our requirements is not the requirements of the software. It's the requirements of the process. It's the requirements of the, of, of the outcome. It's the requirements of what if we call it the user story, mm -hmm. right? So, so the thing about agile, and, and there's a lot of people who are really frustrated with agile. And, and this is where I see the danger that has happened. Agile became an excuse for people to be lazy. Oh no, we're being agile. Well, no, we, we <laughs> agile, and I know you know this. Agile, yeah, yeah, I, I, I understand. Now, was a far more disciplined process than waterfall. Waterfall was absolutely lazy. Agile meant you had really. What do you want this to do? What is this supposed to be? What's it supposed to look like when it's done, right? Or or, at, or whatever its next phase was. You couldn't be vague. You couldn't be an amb ambiguous. In 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 defining what the what the story was going to be that we were shooting for, so everyone was shooting for the same place, and then what it what it became was we were very we were we were very focused on the destination, very flexible on the journey to get there. Right? Is that a fair oversimplification? Yeah, I think where things got weird for everyone is it used to be the destination was fixed. And if it's a multi-year destination, yeah, all I'm doing in, by adopting Agile is actually finding a more accurate way, a more uh, efficient way to truly get to that destination. I think the problem we have in the world today in general is 
the environments in which we're operating, the competitive environments in which we're operating in, they just change at a much faster rate than they ever did in the history of, you know, marketing and business. And so, you know, having things like a three-year target or five-year target, I'm not saying you shouldn't have that, but it's actually the probabilities that that target is going to move have increased dramatically. And so you kind of want to process that on one level, you don't want it to just be a random walk, you know, what they call that, the drunkard's walk, right? You don't want it to just be like, oh, well, maybe randomly we'll find the solution. That would be cool. Um, you know, you want to have a sense of direction, but I think you want to be really careful to the fact that, you know, the sort of rigid way we used to treat those destinations 10, 20, 30 years ago isn't the sort of adaptive strategy that we need to be able to have for today's environment. And it's, it's finding a balance between those two things. So Scott, I'll sum it up what you just said. Um, do you know how a blind cow finds water? No, but well, tell me. I get nervous when Mike goes to these places, just so you know. <laughs> Are we going to regret this? Like, this is, No, this is, this, is, this is true. This is how a blind cow finds water. They randomly walk until they start to find a depression in the ground, like a, a downward slope, and then they follow the downward slope until they hit water. So it's taking a little bit of that random approach to- Path of least resistance. Well, finding... it's the path of least resistance. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, I, I'm realizing, I mean, I could, I mean, Scott, I want to be respectful of your time because I could be talked, I, I, could, I could talk to you forever on this. Um, I'll, I'll finish with this thought and then, um, and then we'll have we'll have to pick this up again, and we'll, I definitely got something. Another two years from now, yes. Let's create our user story for that. Um, here, here's how I know that the problem I'm talking about is is the dominant problem and not the exception, and that is because Clayton Christensen has a best-selling book called Jobs to Be Done. And if people were 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 truly defining the jobs that needed to be done then no one would buy the book because they'd already be doing that. And I think that that gets into the fundamental place where we are not defining what is the job that needs to be done. And so we're, we're, we're buying technology to fix a problem that's not yet a technology problem. All right. I agree with you. Two caveats, right? One is the job to be done actually depends a lot on who you're asking and when they're asking. Because uh -huh. that's part of the challenge. People actually adopt technology for a job to be done, but it's a locally optimized job to be done, not, oh, well, what's our big global optimization job to be done? So you have to be careful of that. Um, yep. you know, and then the other thing is, I mean, part of the reason why Christian, I mean, I, I love that book. I mean, that whole theory from Christensen back from his milkshake marketing article was you could be looking at the customer every single day thinking you know what the job to be done is, but really you're completely blind to it. And I think this is one of the things where the argument of experimenting with new technology, I think isn't always a, um, you know, sort of like a false route to this stuff. In some ways it's a little bit like, right, Mike, what you were just saying about, you know, the, you know, blind cow finding water is sometimes experimenting with these new technologies becomes a way for us to actually just look at the engagement in a different way and maybe actually discover a little bit better what the real job to be done is. I don't know. <laughs> you know what, actually what you just said, 
I agree with a hundred percent. We should stop nope. here then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is, two percent of companies do it that way, and 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 we've got on the other side this. To, to, to hit on the theme that Mike and I like to come back to constantly. Um, the, the, the universe of MarTech has, has spun out so big, so broad, so insanely. The money that's in there, um, that's not all in there to just make the world a better place. Um, isn't, isn't necessarily working towards doing, you know, getting to the right place. It's how do I be the winner? How do I own the data? How do I do this to, you know, to, and, and so we end up, you know, it, it, if we could all work together under that basis, because I agree a hundred percent, it's a, we got to experiment to get there. We're going to get punched, but that's not an excuse not to have a plan and a set of assumptions that go in so that when you like, Hey, this happened. Was it good or bad? Yeah, it's a Bayesian approach to this, right? And you keep updating your Bayesian model based on that. But if you don't have a base model to begin with, yeah, you're like, you know. How do we judge technology? Like, how do we judge our decision in, in most businesses? Did sales go up or did sales go down? Oversimplifying. Hey, sales went up. We're great. Um, well, the, you know, in, in poker, they call that resulting. Overemphasizing the outcome of the decision to the quality of, of the decision that you made, which you made at a point that you only had certain inputs. So I make this decision, here's what my expectation is. Did I get, you know, then what happened? Am I on point or am I not on, am I not on point? And now I get to, you know, ebb and flow my way to, to, to where we're going in, in a dynamic environment. The difficulty is, is I don't think that we're coming in, I think too many businesses um, and too much is being put out there in a place where I feel like I have to catch up, catch up, catch up, right? Because there's this whole fear of missing out thing that, 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 that this extraordinarily powerful thing that could solve for customers and, 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 and really bring about that promise of, of buyers and sellers working together. I feel like Ghostbusters, dogs and cats living in harmony. Um, you know, the, 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 the difficulty is that we're, we're skipping the step. We're, we're, we're skipping a step to its execution. So we'll pick up more on that. Uh, sometime later. Um, but man, Scott, as always, this was, um, I, like I said, I, I would talk to you for another hour. I didn't even realize, I didn't, even, I can't believe we've been talking for an hour. So uh, I'll let you. <laughs> uh, I, I love it. Yeah, thank you for having me on again and indulging me for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks. All Well, thanks for uh, having all coming on and uh, great to catch up and definitely look forward to seeing you next week and uh, having a bit of a chat. Sounds great. All right. Well, safe travels. And that'll do it for this edition of the Black Line Podcast. Until next time.